Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. I'm always trying to get better because you're only ever doing one of two things. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. There's no there's no cruise control. There's no stagnating. So I always pick one thing from yesterday's show that I know I didn't do as well as I can. And I make sure that it's better at the, the show that I'm playing that day. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 86 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Garrett Hack, who is a freelance Broadway musician who's been touring for several years with various shows. We talk a lot about what it's like to play repetitive music, how to keep your chops up on the road, travel tips, and some interesting and surprising onstage accessories you'll need to have if you want to play in this line of work. Detailed show notes for today's episode can be found at clarinet.com slash 86. That's the number 86. While you're there, I invite you to join our email mailing list. Also, you can support the podcast directly on Patreon or indirectly by clicking on the links and offers tab, where there's some exclusive and exciting offers for Clarinet listeners. And now for today's episode of the podcast with Garrett Hack. So tell me, what was it that inspired you to become a Broadway musician? Oh man, so many things. Um, so I, I had my first uh, Broadway musical experience in uh, Toronto, Ontario. I went to see uh, the producers and uh, my parents took me down to the pit rail. Uh, and when I, when I looked over, I saw, you know, maybe 20, 25 musicians down there and thought, wow, geez, that, 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 those are real people playing all that stuff. And this is something that people actually do. And, and sort of after that moment, I, I, I got hooked on the idea of playing a lot of different instruments and, uh, and, and hopefully eventually incorporating that into my, into my career. And that was, I think I was about 15 or 16 years old when that happened. Wow. So you hadn't started playing by 16? No, I, I started saxophone after I got my driver's license. Wow. So was that your was that your first musical experience at that age? Um, I, I had taken piano lessons prior to that and, and despised them deeply. Um, but saxophone. Yeah, that was my that was my first sort of live uh, experience hearing uh, saxophone and, and and doublers in a, in, a, in a show or even performance setting. That's really interesting. So it just seems like 16 is a, a late age to start. So were you in school band or because uh, 16, what, what grade would that be? Uh, 10, 11? Uh, I was in grade 11. I, I was a year ahead of most kids uh, my age. So I would have been in grade 11. And um, I did I did play clarinet in high school, but it was it was very part time. I only played in one ensemble there. Uh, I went to a high school where there were a lot of different ensembles, but I, I only played in, um, in the, the general band. And, uh, I always hid in the back and, and quite often didn't even have a read on my clarinet. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit, but, um, I, uh, I 
wanted to switch to saxophone and um, spoke with my my band directors about it, and no no one no one would allow me to. They said, you know, it's uh, it's too late. You don't take private lessons. So I thought, you know what, maybe if I take private lessons, you know, people will do it. So then I I I, I went and looked for a teacher who would take me on, and and no one would take me on. Everyone said, you know, it's too late. You're too old. Blah 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 blah. And I thought, really, no one wants my sixty bucks an hour. So <laughs> I uh, I ended up. Uh, renting my own saxophone, teaching myself, and entered um, the Kiwanis Music Festival, uh, which is a, a big music festival in Ontario, and I believe it's it's actually it's a Canadian. Country. Yeah. yeah, it's nationwide as well. Um, so I entered that, and I ended up winning the soloist competition. Um, so I, uh, came back and asked my, my teachers again at high school, it's like, you know, can I join the bands now? And they said, yeah, 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 you can. <laughs> Who wants to teach me now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, that was, um, that was a bit of an unfortunate experience. I had like, you know, four or five teachers, all of whom said, uh, you know, you can't do this. And, and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, you know, why not? Uh, it's not, uh, it's not going to make your day any more difficult. And, uh, if, if I have to stop later, then it's, it, I have to stop later. So I didn't feel like it was any different if they let me play or not, but, uh, they were very adamant, uh, not to let me, uh, learn the saxophone. Do you think it's because you were coming across as a promising clarinetist? Cause that's the instrument you started with, right? Yeah, um, I don't think so. I mean, it's possible. Maybe not with, I have, your read, but with your read off in the back there, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I I, I never, I've never asked them. Um, most of it was, I think, them assuming where I wanted to take mm. music. Uh, nobody, nobody was against the idea of me being a music educator, but a lot of them were looking at it. You know, how viable is it for a sixteen-year-old kid who is just starting to really take uh, this kind of music seriously? How viable is it for them? to go on and have a performance career, whether it be as a recording artist or a soloist or, 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 or winning a chair in a symphony. Um, a lot of what I was told was that I couldn't do it because it was too late. Uh, it was too late for me. So, um, I mean, in essence, what, what had happened, what, uh, what they're looking at was, I would say I was in, I was almost done grade 11. So really it would have been about four or five months until my senior year started. So they were looking at, um, a very, a very restricted timeline where I would be, you know, hypothetically taking university auditions within the calendar year. Hmm. And I, I feel like maybe it was partly their fear over my career choice or, or maybe, uh, they didn't feel like I was taking it too seriously. I mean, the way I was looking at it, was, um, look, this is fun. I want to do it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, that's great too. Yeah. Um, which is a good I, attitude I to have. Yeah. I, I, I maybe, maybe it was just some adults feeling that they knew better or maybe because their career hadn't gone the way they wanted that. How could this kid possibly have things go well for him? Yeah. Jealousy is a real, real thing. You know, you make me think of two actually really kind of interesting things. And one is your story about discovering or hearing Broadway for the first time is actually really similar to mine. I can recall, I think I was about six maybe. And I, my, my mom had taken me to a presentation of cats, which was on tour and was coming through town. And, and we went and I, I sat through the whole thing. I thought it was pretty good. I was pretty impressed by the the people on stage doing their thing. And, but from where I was sitting, you couldn't see the pit. And in the, you know, in the age of canned music, even in like the nineties, I guess this would have been early nineties, um, age of canned music. I, I didn't know that the, the music was live. And it wasn't until at the end 
my mom said, oh, something like, oh, why don't you go look over at the orchestra? And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> There's people <laughs> playing along with this? Like, how How do they do what? Like, I was shocked, you know? Um, so that was a real kind of moment for me, too, where I was like, I'm, my God, I can't believe that this was all just produced right here. Like, literally every element was produced in this room. That's that's amazing, <laughs> you know? Um, I think a lot of people have that experience when they go to these kind of shows in this this day and age where we're used to sort of this... Um, you know, recordings, um, being, being produced. So what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, is that something that people encounter kind of a level of amazement to what you do? Yeah. I mean, uh, the current show I'm with right now, a lot of people have that reaction. They'll come down to the pit and they'll say things like, well, I'm amazed. Like you get so much sound with, you know, so few, so few individuals. I mean, there's 14, 14 of us in the pit and, um, we sound, we do, we definitely do sound a lot bigger. I mean, that's, that's sort of a testament to our, our, our sound engineer, but also you know, to the orchestration and, and to the writing itself. But, um, one of the most common comments that we get in, uh, with the show is you guys sound so much more lush and rich and full than, uh, your numbers would suggest. Yeah. So you think you're inspiring students that are, you know, the age of 16 or, or younger today with, <laughs> you're playing? Uh, I sense? hope so. Yeah. Um, I hope I hope I'm inspiring. I mean, um, it's it it, it it can be a, a little tough sometimes because uh, doublers sort of some uh, occasionally, especially with cert- a certain crowd, have a, a negative connotation to them because you know you spend if you if you play three different instruments, then you've divided your time uh, among the three, and you're you're not as good as maybe you could have been had you only stuck to one instrument, but. Um, I would I would hope that I have triggered more smiles than than tears over the course of my career. Um, <laughs> I like that. But uh, there's there's definitely I've definitely had some people you know voice their frustrations over my my choice of playing the, as many instruments as I do, and and I can totally understand that. But the other side of the coin is would I have had the strength and fortitude and focus to play uh, one instrument versus, I think I play about 12 or 13 right now. Well, let's talk about the instruments that you play. I mean, I, uh, I'm i aware of the clarinet, saxophone, uh, flute, and bassoon, of all things. Um, so you're kind of a quadrupler, but you say 12 or 13 instruments? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because uh, <laughs> I, I, I play things like the, the Irish flute is something that I have picked up over the last couple of years and have been working on. Well, it appears sometimes on a, on a, you know, a list, eh, probably? A- absolutely. I mean, I mean the, the guy playing Come From Away right now is playing something like three or four different flutes, a number of different whistles, and then some pipes as well. Um, you know, Lion King, of course, has Irish flute on it. Um, I believe, let's see what other, there's, 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 it's, it's come up more in the last 10, 15 years than it ever has before in Dublin for sure. And then, you know, Ch- Chinese flutes as well, uh, Bansuri flutes and some other Japanese flutes. It's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different pipes out there and, um, it, it, it they're a lot of fun to get into and I, I'm slowly just, you know, dipping my toe into that, uh, vast oasis of, uh, of headache, but also hopefully some fun too. So what's this Uh, process like? Do you just sit down one day and be like, Oh, you know, I'd really love to learn some Irish flute or do you get a call that has some Irish flute on it and then go, okay, I need to learn this in six weeks. Well, my, 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 uh, the beginning of my career was absolutely like that where I'd get a call 
And so they say, hey, Garrett, do you play alto flute? And, you know, I say, yes, yes, of course. And of <laughs> course, of, of course, I've never held one in my life. So, you know, you immediately go over to the music store and you rent one or you call up a friend, that you know, has one and you borrow it and you play long tones for eight hours a day. But um, uh, I, uh, recently, it's more of a, you hear something and you say, wow, that's really cool. I want to be a part of that. And you mm. find out that it's, you know, what sound is that? Like that person's getting a really nice, dark and woody flute sound. What fl kind of flute are they playing? And then, you know, lo and behold, it's some kind of Irish flute. And so I had this experience. I, I was listening to a flutist named Hans Araki, who um, was who was playing. And he's, he, he's a he's a West Coast flutist and um, plays a lot of folk. But he also plays some, you know, contemporary stuff as well. And he was playing this one flute solo, and I had no idea how he was getting the sound he was getting. I, I found out he was playing an Irish flute, uh, actually made by a Canadian company out in Nova Scotia. So I, I called them up and said, hey, I, I, I heard I heard Hans Araki was playing one of your flutes. I would really like to know, you know, what flute he was playing and uh, how much it was. So, you know, you, know, you strike a deal, you buy the flute, do, uh, comes in the mail, you do some long tones, and uh, you learn it. So that, that's how like, that's how Irish flute uh sort of joined my life. Um, it was, and it was also just uh, out of a, a, a desire to learn the Lion King book. Well, uh, I, there's a long list of Broadway shows that I'd, I would always love to play, you know, it should the opportunity arise. And Lion, Lion King is something like 15 different flutes on it on the flute book. So, wow. I mean, uh, Irish flute being one of them, I think there's Irish flute in three different keys with that show. Um, so I, I, I bought one and now I'm, one of 15, or I, I believe it's 15 flutes. I'll have to double check that. But uh, there's, there's, there's a lot. And uh, it's, it's a really fun book. If, if, if your listeners are really into music theater, they should definitely check out that score. This brings up about 100 more questions for me, but I, I want to be mindful of the fact that I interrupted your list. So we had saxophone, bassoon, clarinet, Irish flute, flute. <laughs> what else is in there? Oh, um, I, I play, uh, I, I, I play a little bit of Bansuri. I mean, I hesitate to to, to list that because I, it's it's uh, such a nascent instrument in my in my arsenal. But I, I also include bass clarinet because I feel that is a fairly different instrument than uh, than clarinet itself. I know many great clarinetists who who do not consider themselves in any regard uh, a bass clarinetist, and vice versa. Um, I, I do I do include the the four saxophones in, in my list because again uh, a great tenor player does not necessarily make you a great alto player um, and, and vice versa. Uh, soprano is also a very difficult instrument to play. I, I play soprano in 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 my current show and it's there's a lot of you know really difficult uh, high fidelity high control type uh, tone and pitch situations so. I definitely believe, even though the fingerboard and the and and the key work is essentially identical, um, there are so many different things like like vowel shape and and air and uh, reed strength and tip opening. There's so many different different aspects that uh, that are different, even though there are a great deal of things that are similar. Um, I do play bassoon. I, I also include alto flute in that list. I include piccolo on that list. I include E flat clarinet on that list. Um, 13 is starting to sound like a pretty conservative number. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and I'm probably, I mean, compared to some of my colleagues, I would say I might be on the low end. Um, some of uh, my more accomplished colleagues in New York and, and Toronto who have been around the circuit you know, longer than I have, 
uh, play even more instruments. And uh, I mean, that's just such a great testament to their work ethic and their ability. But I, I mean, eventually, I think it just sort of happens. Like you mm-hmm. said, you get a phone call and it's like, hey, Garrett, do you play this? And maybe you play something similar. Like maybe if I got a call and said, hey, Garrett, do you play Irish flute in F? Like I've never played an Irish flute in F, but I played an Irish flute in D, E and E flat. So how different could F be? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, A clarinet versus B flat clarinet it's um there's there's definite you know differences and obviously the uh some of the excerpts are going to be very different and the repertoire is going to be very different but in in essence i mean it's not a great stride uh, away versus something like hey um you know play if you've never played bassoon before and then all of a sudden you have to wor- uh you know navigate the the world of double reeds that 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 to me is a much greater stride than going clarinet to clarinet or fl- or flute to flute so it's interesting because the A and B flat clarinet is one of the only instruments that does not get paid doubling for, I think, precisely the reason you, you mentioned is because they're basically become one item. Um, if, if you're playing A, it's assumed you also play B flat or vice versa in an orchestra, for example. Which, which is very cruel. Yeah, you know, because you still have to have two instruments warmed up and ready exactly. to go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I agree in a way. But uh, so my question, I'm not sure if you're entirely comfortable answering this, but when you add an instrument like Irish flute or whatever to the gig, and you, let's say you add 10 instruments, how does that affect your, your doubling rates as a union member? Um, well, that, that's going to vary depending on what your contract is. So if you're, mm. if, if you're a local, say, in Toronto or New York, um, and you, you're hired to play a long-running show, you're going to, I think you get paid, there's a base pay you get paid for three instruments, and then you earn a bonus for every additional instrument. Um, the the union contract that I'm with right now is a, a CETA contract, which is a touring contract, and I get paid for three instruments flat. So if I played eight instruments, I still only get paid for three. Mm. Um, but, the, I mean, uh on the other side of the coin, I am only currently playing two instruments for the show, but I am getting paid for three. Well, yeah, I guess I just never realized how that worked. I mean, I've played, uh, you know, A and B flat, which obviously you don't get doubling and then, but I've added E flat or, or bass or something else to that before. And then you do experience doubling. Um, but then I was wondering like, wait a minute, are you going to be the next Bill Gates? If you know, <laughs> if you're playing eight instruments on a show or what does it look like? But I guess that, that answers that. Well, m- m- most shows that come out these days will cap you at three for that very reason. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's all about the bean counting and all that kind of stuff. But uh, if you, if you look um, at uh, older, older books, you can actually almost correlate how people are writing to the, the pit, min- pit minimums that you see in the uh, current AFM union agreement. Interesting. So, um, it's, it's not, it's not a perfect science, but it, it is something interesting and it is something that you should absolutely be aware of as, as a doubler. So you've gone on the road now for several months and what I want to get into is a little bit of the logistics here of how, how does this work? I mean, you have 13 instruments that you could potentially double on and let's say you have to take six or eight of those on the road. I mean, what does that even look like? Oh, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so on kinky boots, I played four instruments. I played tenor and alto sax, uh, clarinet and flute. And that obviously just those four instruments alone will uh, exceed the carry on limit for for flights. So what what Kinky Boots did for me is I had a I had a road box already that I, that I had bought from actually Dustin Richardson and um I I packed my my saxophone in my saxophones in there, you know, my stands um 
my uh, I had a I had a music a classical music music stand and you know everything everything else that uh, I sort of needed in the pit so like maybe a chair cushion and uh, an empty water bottle all that kind of stuff and they they shipped that to New York where I, I, I met I met them for rehearsal and then I just carried my my flute and clarinet in a backpack. Hmm. Um, so that that's sort of how how that looks. I mean, what other people have done and what I've done for other, you know, union union shows or like union gigs that I've done where I do play a lot uh, of instruments like go, going into New York City to play like at the Opera of America or something like that. Um, what I, what I often did is I, I would carpool somebody else and I would go half on on parking and we'd drive in because some shows I was playing, I had I was playing the low read book. So it would be like baritone sax and then, you know, bass clarinet and bassoon and maybe tenor sax as well. And that, that's that's way too much to take on a bus. That's way too much to take on the subway. So so quite often you just, you just bite the bullet and you carpool with one or two other people, depending if you had a van or if you had a, a sedan or something like that. Um, but you need a lot of patience and uh, a lot of pre-planning. And having having really good cases helps. Like if you if you have cases with wheels, great. If you uh, if you get one of those grocery carts on uh, those classical grocery carts, those those are those are a lifesaver. Um, you can fit a lot of a lot of gear and a lot of stands on there. And, and a lot of people forget that the the stands are what kills you because I mean you already have your hands on all the handles of your horns, but you still haven't. You know, you still haven't brought your music stand. You still don't have your music. You still don't have maybe your your uh, your reed kit or whatever else you're bringing. And then your music stand, uh, your your instrument stands. So it's 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 definitely a juggling act. And um, it, it it took a few gigs for me to really learn the right formula. But um, getting the right case, like you, you can get a doubler's case. That's great. You can get. Um, some kind of bag that will fit a lot of things comfortably and, and, to, and where you can access everything in it, you know, fairly easily. Uh, that's, I would highly recommend looking into stuff like that. And so how long would a normal kind of tour be in this industry? I mean, do you have a permanent address right now and you're just kind of on the road for a couple of weeks or what's this, what does it look like? Um, so I forwarded all my, all my mail and like all, all, all that kind of important government stuff to my, my parents address. So I, uh, so I, you know, I wasn't, you know, missing out on anything that was important coming through. Uh, you can't, I, I have forwarded some mail to certain cities if we're sitting in a, in a city for, you know, three or more weeks, but generally I, I, I try and just keep it consistent. Um, tours usually last a year to two years. Um, some, some go even longer. I mean, like the Lion King tour has been going on for well over 10 years now, um, I think Phantom was around for about 19 years, uh, uh, and various iterations. Um, there's 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 some tours that have have a lot of staying power. Like Wicked is definitely still on tour. Um, Book of Mormon is still on tour. Les Mis just recently went back out. I know Cats is going back out. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of um, you know Broadway heavyweights still out there like beauty and the beast was out for a really long time but but most shows last about a year about two years and and that's because of the uh sub, the broadway subscription series with uh, broadway across america and across canada um and that the, that that sort of series incorporates a lot of the major cities that will have you know an active uh audience uh, that 
are coming to see, you know, shows every year. And generally that involves, you know, when you subscribe, you have to buy tickets to three different shows. And, and I mean, this year, this past season and next season in particular, um, because of Hamilton, uh, a lot of the tours out there are having very good years and very strong years because of the subscription series where where people are buying tickets to go see Hamilton. And then the the, the craftier sort of uh, whoever, whoever planned this, I, I applaud you because a lot of other shows are benefiting because in order to get tickets to Hamilton, you quite often have to buy tickets to see two or three other shows. Kinky Boots lasted is still going. I, I actually left the tour before it closed, but Kinky Boots, I think, is in its third year or maybe fourth year now. Um, and I, I, I did a good run of the, the union part of the tour. I believe it's gone non, non-union now for their onstage talent. And I think, I think the musicians are still union, but I, I'm not sure. So when you say it goes on tour for a year, are we talking you're on the road for 52 weeks? You will occasionally get uh, weeks off if the show is moving from coast to coast because the, the trucks that carry the set have to physically cross you know, the country. So uh, we'll, I'll, my current show will be experiencing that in a few weeks. We'll be going from, I believe it's Portland, Oregon, and then we have a week off, and we're the next our next city is Hartford, Connecticut. So we're we're we got across we got across the whole country. So they're going to give the team you know some time off one so that we're not on payroll, and and two so that everybody gets a bit of a break. What are some of the mental challenges, and how do you deal with? Uh you know, life on the road like that, being away from family and, and, and friends and, you know, potential life partners and normalcy and, and things like that. And also playing the same music um, over and over. I mean, how do you deal with these these challenges mentally? Yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. Um, with, with veteran touring musicians, you'll find they often have very similar traits. They're often very, you know, uh, agreeable people or they're, or they're very good at, you know, conversing and negotiating. Um, they're, they're quite talented, but they also usually have uh, a solid routine and routine is usually what carries people through a tour. I mean, and, and from what I've seen, uh, a solid routine will make or break your, your touring experience. Uh, and what, I mean, what I've done is, uh, I always make time to practice every day, even if it's only 15 minutes, it's like you, you, you have to hold yourself to that routine of, of, of playing your instrument. Because if you get to, you know, I was, I got to with kinky boots and mouse show for 400 or something like that. Uh, when you get to the end, if you, if you've stopped practicing and if you've stopped appreciating, you know, some of the things that you'd like to work on or some of the things you appreciate about the instrument, when you get to the show, it's, um, you can start to feel a little bit of resentment, a little bit of apathy, and that can come out in your playing. Like, um, it, it, it's it, musicians for sure. And I believe even just the regular audience can, can hear when, uh, uh, an orchestra is involved or not. So some of the things that, that I've done, um, uh, on the road that have contributed to some of, uh, my longevity, cause I've been on the road. I, I did, let's see, I'm almost approaching a year with love never dies. I did about a year with kinky boots. I did, a non-ec of Saturday Night Fever, and I did three years of Chicago. So what I what I did is every week I take uh, a half day off of no playing. Uh, I don't listen to any music that's similar to what I'm playing. Um, maybe like if like. 
for example, with, with my current show, like it's almost completely clarinet, about 90% clarinet, a little bit of soprano saxophone, and it's all very much in the uh, classical and orchestral vein. There's, there's almost no jazz. So what I'll do is maybe I'll go and, and I'll transcribe Michael Brecker on, the, on my half day off just to do something completely different. And then the opposite was true when I was with Kinky Boots. I mean, I was playing mostly rock and roll tenor sax and, and alto saxophone. So what I would do is I would go and play Glazunov or Villalobos or something like that. Just, just do something completely different to keep uh, to keep me sharp. Um, I, I also, uh, I will trade lessons with other people in the orchestra, whether if they're, you know, a flutist or, or, or just a pianist or whatever, you know, I'll, I'll schedule time in with somebody else just to do something, just to have fun. And like right now I'm with a couple of the keyboardists in the show, we're working on recital material and we're hoping to put on some, some little sideshows as, uh, as we go across the country. Um, I also make time to, to call people, uh, you know, to keep in touch, to, you know, remind yourself that there's life outside of the tour bus and, 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 and the theater. And then, uh, I also make sure one day a week I am, I am going out into the city wherever we are and doing something. Kind of being a tourist like, a little bit. Uh, yeah, just, just a hundred percent be a tourist. Like we were in Vegas a few weeks ago. So I, um, I mean, admittedly it was multiple days of me going out and, and enjoying the city, but you know, I, I would go out and I, I visited, you know, the, the, the park at Red Rock. I, uh, I went to the Bellagio. I saw the, the fountain show. I saw, you know, I saw, um, a Cirque du Soleil show. I, I, I went out and I appreciated the things that that city has to offer that, you know, isn't your show, which, which can be tough because quite often, uh, the show that you're with is going to be on at the same time that most of the fun things are. So you, you often have to go see matinees or you have to go early, very early in the day to go anywhere and enjoy something. But it, it's, I, 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 I am a firm believer in sticking to that sort of, um, a small victory uh, schedule format where you're forcing yourself to do things because if you finish the week and you didn't do anything and then you start to feel bad about it, that that can absolutely spiral and snowball into a very big problem where it's like all of a sudden, you know, now things, now things are really bad because I didn't do anything. And I feel really bad about myself because I didn't do anything. Like the quality of your life is directly related to the quality of your communication. And if you start talking to yourself in such a way that supports and, and, and allows negativity to thrive, then you're, you're going to be in trouble. So as far as the music specifically, how do you keep your mind engaged? You said you played this show 400 times. What I usually do is I'll look at the I'll look at yesterday's show and say, oh, you know what? I didn't do this particular part of this particular number as well as I know I can. Um, so I'm going to really focus on the elements of that of that part and 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 do that thing really well. So maybe it was like a, a heavily articulated section. So then the whole show. I'm really focused on the quality of my articulation. And if that's too broad, then maybe I, I just think, you know what, I'm just going to think about the quality of articulation on on an E or on a G or maybe E minor, like if there's an E minor scale or whatever. And I'll, I'll pick something to focus on to make better than the day mm. before because I'm always trying – I'm always trying to get better because you're only ever doing one of two things. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. There's no, there's no cruise control. There's no stagnating. Like you're always, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. So I always want to get better. So I always pick one thing every show that I want to do better. And it's usually fairly easy because I, I mean, there's, I don't know, 
two, 3,000 notes in any given show. So you, there's no way you're going to play each and every one of them exactly the way you want to every single night. So I, I, I always go and pick something from yesterday's show that I know I didn't do as well as I can, and I make sure that it's better at the, the show that I'm playing that day. Yeah, I think that's such great advice generally, even just for practicing for, for students doing virtually anything. Like, look at what you did and think about the step to make it a little better. And after a bunch of steps, maybe it's a lot better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if you're if you're practicing and um, and you're you're breezing through like some kind of scale exercise and let's say that's the only thing you play that day, if you're if you're not focused on, on improving that and you're you're playing scales and you happen to, you know, flub a few notes and then you keep going onto the next key. I mean, the only time you played that scale that day, you played it wrong. It, it's really important to, to maintain the, the integrity of your focus. Um, I, I, I would much rather, um, if I, if let's say I, I screwed up like a whole scale in, in one show, which, you know, knock on wood hasn't happened yet, but say I do, um, I, maybe I focus on, on the quality of the very first note, like how I start that scale, uh, or, or maybe it was the, uh, maybe it was the last note or maybe it went over the break. So maybe it's the first note over the break that tripped me up. I, mm. I just focus on the one note rather than than the whole scale. And quite often, uh, the whole scale will improve because, you know, maybe I got a better start to it or, or, or I, I crashed the brake more cleanly or, or any, any number of different things. But, um, at intermission and then some, and sometimes after the show, you know, people will come up to my stand and you'll quite often find me, um, you know, ghost, ghost fingering a couple passages. Cause maybe my B flat to my B on the, on the clarinet wasn't as quick as it could have been. Maybe no one else probably noticed, but I felt it or I noticed. And I'm just, you know, trying to make sure that the, if that's the only time I go B flat to B that day, I'm making sure the very last time I do it, I did it the way I wanted. So for people who are on the show or on the road as much as you, um, I always love to ask, do you have any travel tips that the average person could take advantage of? Oh, absolutely. Um, invest in comfort. So, uh, not, I've played a lot of different theaters. Um, I would recommend looking into either a backrest or a seat cushion or both. If, if you prefer both, I, I happen just to prefer uh, a backrest. Um, you can get them at the dollar store. I've seen them at bed, bath and beyond. They're just this black sort of mesh, uh, thing that has a strap around the back and you can wrap it against any, any seat backing. And you can also use that on airplanes. You could use it on buses. It's, um, it's definitely something that I, I really, really, uh, attribute a lot of my comfort to because, because, because this show is about two and a half hours long and I, I tasked it only one number out of like the 32 or 33 different numbers. And that backrest is definitely a contributor to my success. Uh, and they're only about seven bucks. Um, for musicians specifically, um, invest in a quiet water bottle. I have, let's see, there's there's three microphones to my left, there's two in front of me, and there's two to my right in the woodwind section because we, we have, um, we're, we're all, all, each of our instruments are mic'd individually. And um, any noise you make, especially in a, in a, uh, a loud theater, you hear it. Like one, I remember one show very early on in the tour we had, um, it, it was still carpeted, but it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't stapled to the floor underneath was concrete. So I moved, when I moved my chair, you know, that awful sort of loud reverberating chair sound when, when it, when it screeches along the floor happened. And, uh, I leaned over at intermission to the read three player and I said, well, I guess I know our mics are hot all the time. 
and, and so the, the quiet water bottle thing, um, you, you really want one that you can, it's, and it is a little, it is weird to talk about, but you do, at least in this pit, you do want one that doesn't make a whole lot of, uh, noise and whether it's swishing back and forth or, or, or not. Like, so, so the water bottle that I use has a straw that goes all the way to the bottom. Unless you were looking at me, you'd never know I was using it. But, um, the, the, for this show at that, that I would say that's fairly important because with, with, with kinky boots and with other shows that I've done, uh, that hasn't mattered. It hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been an issue. Um, so yeah, quiet water bottle. Also one that if you, if you drop it, um, maybe it won't break or shatter. Like I know a lot of people like to use, you know, aluminum or steel, uh, water bottles these days. Um, in this pit that wouldn't really fly. Cause some of the, some of the surfaces that we, we, uh, are on are just concrete floors. So if you drop it, everyone's, everyone in the theater is going to know. Um, I would say for, for woodwind musicians specifically, get a, get a good reed knife. Um, there are so many different climates that I've played in and you can go from dry to wet or, or really quick. Like when we went from, uh, Vegas, which happened to be really hot and really dry. We went to San Diego after that, which happened that week to be incredibly wet. So all my reeds swelled up and everything was awful. And I had to work on reeds a lot more than I normally do. Um, I would invest in a really good backpack, uh, one that can fit everything that you need, like your computer, maybe a change of blacks, because sometimes your, your, your luggage gets lost. So you always want to make sure you have, uh, your uniform available to you at all times. Um, I, I, it also fits my clarinet and I, and my flute because I do travel my flute on, on this tour, even though I don't play it in the show because I don't want it to get worse. Cause remember you're only, you're always getting better or you're getting worse. So I don't want to get worse at the flute and, um, invest in a good pair of, uh, of headphones or earbuds. Um, cause sometimes you're on flights and, uh, they're really noisy or maybe the, maybe everyone else around you is really talkative and you don't want to be. So sometimes it's nice just to, you know, unplug from from the world and just dive into whatever music you're listening to at the time. So th th those are three uh, sort of, you know, saving, tour saving things that I, I would recommend that can make or break how you feel that day. Well, it's really interesting about the water bottle. It's funny funny because I, I did a review of a reed case a couple of years ago for the podcast even. And uh, my biggest thing about it at first was I thought it had, was so cool how it had these magnet uh clasps kind of thing but then i used it in a performance and the problem was you couldn't shut the case quietly oh no and if you need to switch reads during a performance it's a total deal breaker so that's one of the feedback things i provided the manufacturer was like i mean look it it seems cool it, it it's a cool idea but it makes a sound maybe it's just like a, a personal preference thing but i mean I, I always have the philosophy of of not affecting somebody else's job performance like everything i do i want to make i want to do it so that it's easier for everyone else to do their job and if if you happen to start have like a dry throat or, or have a cough welling up and you need a sip of water and it happens to be during somebody else's solo and there you are chugging away at your water bottle and it's making all sorts of slurpy noises. It's that, I mean, that's, that's probably not going to improve the, the job performance of the other of your colleagues. So, um, I, I would, I definitely have a lot of quiet things at my, I guess you could call it my cubicle, my pit cubicle. Um, I, I have like a music stand box that is completely lined with felt for that very reason. Um, I often will leave my, my keys or my change in my backpack 
for the same thing. Like I don't want my wallet, you know, jingling. Um, I have, I have reads and, uh, easily accessible so that if I do, uh, have to change any, change any reads mid performance that, that it's, it's easy, it's quick and it, it's quiet and hopefully nobody, nobody notices. Um, my, my, my music stands are also, also have foam or felt on them. So they're quiet as well. Um, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, and I mean, this is the show I'm, I'm with, uh, I mean, I keep bringing it up, but it's, 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 it's completely live. Like there's, there's the, it's all so much underscoring all the time. So the, the mic is always on. So if you, if you make a noise, uh, everyone's going to know. And that's, that's not, that's not something I want to be contributing. That's that's not, that was not my musical responsibility at the time. So I, 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 uh, I, I strive to, just play the notes on the page and and uh, and not add any extra percussion, as it were. I feel like what you're saying is it's your job to perform the silences as well as the notes you're asked to play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's there's actually a lot of important silence in this show too. I mean, and of course, you know, Murphy's Law. There's this one grand sort of pause. I mean, I don't want to ruin the ending for anybody who's going to see the show, but there's there's a very you know there's a very uh, dramatic death at one point in the show, and there's this big beat of uh, silence, and of course, the fire alarm goes off. <laughs> so, and and that's actually happened uh, on two two or three occasions, and so it's it's. It's interesting, you know, how, how uh, Murphy's Law works like that. But um, there's there's definitely some responsible moments where you, you gotta you gotta know your surroundings and and not make too much noise. Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, of course, I've got many more questions. I feel like we could go on for five hours, like I did with Ed Joffe that time. But I. I want to be mindful of uh, your time here. Um, if I could just ask one more today, and that would be, what advice would you have for any young people looking to get into being a Broadway touring musician or even uh, someone who plays shows locally, the kind of music? Uh, well, if it's something you really want to do, then uh, I would look at the shows that you really want to be involved with, find out what instruments uh, there are in it, and uh, and learn them. Start fooling around, start, you know... Uh, making educational mistakes and uh, and and growing from them and and just uh, finding ways to be involved in that. If if it's your um, if it's your main source of income, then you, yeah, that's gonna you know change the kind of decisions you wanna you wanna be making. But I would recommend, especially if 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 you're a younger musician, is just to play with the local fringe festival or or the local theater company or find a high school that's putting out a production that year and and see if you can play and uh, just just get a lot of experience. If you're older and it's important for you to be making more money, then um I would definitely uh, advise you to to practice a lot. Like um, to prep for this show, I was practicing eight hours a day just to learn the clarinet parts because it, it it was incredibly difficult stuff in the in the show sometimes. So what I, what I would say to your your older listeners, um, practice a lot and try and put yourself in situations where you can learn, but also put food on the table. So maybe that's playing a show on a cruise ship, or maybe that's taking uh, a short run a show at a at a theater nearby you, or maybe that's a union tour or a 
non-union tour and, and just looking at the and look at the people who are doing the kinds of things that you want to do and find out a way that you can follow the same career path, whether it is you're taking auditions, whether it's you're, you know, doing another degree, whether it's doing your undergrad or your master's, what have you. Um, just find your look at the social norms of the of the people who are doing the things that you are doing and try and emulate those as mes- as best as possible. That's fantastic. Great answer. So at the end here, I always do six questions called the lightning round, and they're all meant to be answered in less than a minute, kind of rapid fire here. The first one is if I walk over to your music stand right now, what would I find on it? Uh, Via Lobos Fantasia for soprano saxophone. What piece of music or album changed your life irreversibly? Oh my gosh, uh, Quintet Chicago, Cannonball Adderley, and John Coltrane. If you could play any instrument other than the clarinet or any of the other many doubles that you play, <laughs> which would it be and why? Uh, oh, I, I guess I'd want to learn the, the suana, which is a, it's like a Chinese oboe trumpet. Um, if you could go back in time and meet any musician, uh, who would it be and why? Uh, Paul Desmond, because he wrote my favorite, uh, he wrote my favorite jazz standard of all time. And he just seems like such an interesting guy and he died well before I was ever around. So it would be a really neat opportunity to meet him. What is that favorite jazz standard? Uh, take five. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, while we're back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Ah, oh, gee, uh, learn saxophone sooner. Um, I, I, I wish I had I wish I had the 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 money and the wherewithal because uh, when I when I heard Take Five for the first time and then when I heard uh, Quintet in Chicago that Cannonball Adderley album I, I I had that sort of moment where it was like wow what is that and uh, my mom said well that's a saxophone I wish at that moment I had taken a little bit more responsibility in my young self and said oh I'd I'd like to learn how to play that so uh, I, I wish I I um, indulged my curiosity more. What's the best advice you ever personally received and who gave it to you? The, be- the best advice I was ever given uh, was by a friend of mine who, uh, when, as, as many musicians experience, there, there is a, a, a severe lull in, in my employment and my employability. And he said, if you don't like it, play better. So I uh, practiced a lot and got better. And lo and behold, maybe like a half a year or a year later, I, I won an audition that, and that uh, changed, changed the course of my career. And so who said that? Uh, that was my friend John, and that was uh, before I got my first cruise ship gig. Yeah, that's such a harsh but true advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's often the best kind. Yeah, yeah. Well, p- part of it was he, um, I mean, he just didn't want to hear me complain anymore, I think. But uh, I, say that, I say that out of love. <laughs> <laughs> what is one book that you think every uh, clarinetist or musician should read and why? Um, well, the, the saxophone answer is the devil's horn because it's just so fascinating. Um, without giving away too much of the book, I mean, the, the, the saxophone had so much, uh, going against it that it even exists today is, is quite amazing. Um, I mean, this is, this is a little bit cheating, but for clarinet, I think everyone should read the Baramon, but, um, that's, that's not really, that's not really a work of prose. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I, I would say Playing Less Hurt by Janet Horvath or um, uh, I, I, let's, let's go with that. Playing Less Hurt by Janet Horvath. It's about uh, I, I wrote my thesis on uh, playing related musculoskeletal disorders of the upper limbs and wooden musicians. And that was one of the books I found most informative and most fascinating. Uh, it's all about how to play and, and what to do when you're hurt and what to do uh, not to get hurt and all, all that kind of good stuff that allows us to have my God, careers. that's uh 
I have to have you back about that. Remind me in a few weeks. We should talk again. That's I don't <laughs> sure, want to gloss sure. over that. That sounds like an incredibly interesting topic, uh, especially for me. I suffered an injury last year. I th- tendon lacerations on three fingers and oh my God. taken me. Well, 76% of all musicians in the U.S. will experience some kind of music- uh, in, uh, injury that will stop them from playing for two or more weeks, according to my research. My God. I'm not kidding. Let's get back in touch in, a, in several weeks and, and chat again. That's... Uh, Definitely. I'm doing a series on, um, I want to do a series here on career related things like caring protection and, uh, financial management and injury prevention. So yeah, let's, uh, let's talk again for sure. Absolutely. So, well, thanks so much for coming on today. I really, really honestly have many more questions we could have talked all day. So I really hope you'll come back. And, uh, but before we go, is there anything else you'd like to add? Is there a place people can find you online or? Um, I'm actually currently working on a number of different projects, which will hopefully be available at the end of this year. I'm working on a website and I'm working on an album. Um, but for the, for the, for the time being, you can just uh, find me on Facebook or Instagram, Garrett.hack. Um, if you, if you want to reach out, it's Garrett.hack at gmail.com. Uh, Garrett has two R's and two T's. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This was such a interesting conversation and I really look forward to having you back in the very near future here. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Sean. For detailed show notes for today's episode, please see clarineat.com slash 86. And while you're there, I invite you to join our email mailing list, support the podcast directly on Patreon, or check out the exciting links and offers available. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and I'll see you next time for more of what's new and neat for clarinet on the Clarinet Podcast. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.